Well, it started on reality television. Amarosa Manigault Newman was a famous villain in The Apprentice, and she gave him a ratings bonanza with her antics, with her cutthroat tendencies, with her really penchant to say or do almost anything. And Trump loved it uh, to some degree. I think he admired her moxie and admired how conniving she was, admired her willingness to you know, do whatever it took, basically. But as Ashley Parker and Phil Rucker, our colleagues, wrote, it's like when the dinosaurs they made in Jurassic Park turn on you, uh, <laughs> you no longer love the dinosaurs as much. Amarosa Manigault Newman, a reality TV star, turned Trump campaign staffer, turned White House aide, has written a tell-all book. And yes, it's juicy. Omarosa Manigault Newman making explosive but unverified accusations. She's now accusing the president of, quote, wanting to start a race war. Is she a whistleblower or is she a fame junkie? But the book and Amarosa's press tour to promote it raises major questions about what a former campaign and White House aide can say about their time in the administration. And it raises questions about the power the president has to stop her. Because in the midst of the news this week, we found out more details about one way the president is trying to manage leaks out of his White House. And that's through non-disclosure agreements. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. In his business life, Donald Trump has shown a particular fondness for the use of non-disclosure agreements or NDAs, agreements designed to get those close to him to not reveal disparaging information about him or his businesses. On many occasions, he required Trump Organization employees to sign these agreements. It's not uncommon in the business world. But Trump also used NDAs for his staff on his 2016 presidential campaign. And then in early 2017, a number of White House aides while working in the administration were also urged to sign NDAs. Those were intended to prevent current and former government employees from revealing secrets or disparaging the president or his family. So what about Omarosa, a former staffer making daily press appearances disparaging the president and sharing dirt from her days inside the White House? Omarosa says she never signed an NDA in the White House, but she says she did sign one during her time on the 2016 Trump campaign. Amarosa was a valuable surrogate, particularly to the African-American community, and she traveled for him. She was out on the road for him giving him a little bit of credence in communities that maybe were distrustful of him. And I think he saw her as particularly useful uh, during the campaign. Josh Dossi is a White House reporter here at The Washington Post who's been covering this crazy week of news as Omarosa releases her book. He's explaining how Omarosa ended up among Trump's most prominent campaign aides. He also thought, and others in the campaign thought this, that she was quite good on television. She would defend anything. She would throw a fierce punch back at a host. A lot of the qualities that the president really loved in her were how really pugnacious and pugilistic she was on television, defending him and parroting his agenda no matter what the question was. Amarosa did do this. Often. She made some pretty bold claims as a voice of the Trump campaign. On PBS Frontline, she notoriously said, Every critic, every detractor will have to bow down to President Trump. It's everyone. That was maybe her most famous quote as a campaigner. Sorry. So then she came to work at the White House. What role did she serve there? 
So she was director of communications for the Office of Public Liaison. In actuality, Omarosa did about what she wanted to at the White House. She, you know, flittered in and out of meetings, angering her colleagues. She was very disliked in the building. That said, the president continued to like her, particularly early on when Reince Priebus was chief of staff. She had a lot of access to the Oval Office. She was in two or three times a week. The president was calling her. She was making the maximum salary in the White House, uh, almost $180,000. She was an assistant to the president, which is highest you can get. She was the most senior African-American aide in the West Wing. She had some stature, even if in actuality she didn't do all that much. Mm -hmm. And then eventually she did, in fact, get fired. So what were the circumstances of that? So... Circumstances of her firing were essentially the abuse of a government car service. You know, taking government cars to places that were not related to her job, like to the airport, to fly home, or to meet someone for dinner. Now, in actuality, why she got fired was kind of an amalgamation of things, right? Like, Ryan's Priebus, when he was chief of staff, was keeping a folder on her looking for a reason to fire her. John Kelly did not want her in the building. She was not seen as an asset to uh, the White House or to the president. So, I guess the, the short answer is ostensibly she was fired for misusing the car service. So, the long answer is she was fired because... There were a lot of reasons she was fired. <laughs> and we hear her firing play out on a ta- right. recording that she released to NBC News that was taken in the White House Situation Room. What do we hear on that tape? On that tape. Hi. Hi there. How are you? Hi. My assistant. Could you uh, leave this alone? Sure. John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff, he walks in to basically the most secretive annals of the White House situation room. And she's recording. And you can hear this crosstalk. She's talking to her assistant. She's waiting for John Kelly to come in. And Kelly comes in and basically fires her. We've got to talk to you about uh, leaving the White House. Quickly, within about three minutes. He doesn't take any questions. He says... But there's been some pretty, in my opinion, significant integrity issues related to you and use of government vehicles and some other issues. Uh, you're out of here. Um, now, this is a room where they'll, they'll, you know, the bin Laden strike was ordered, where Iran nuclear some, deals were worked out. This is a place where a myriad of historical moments of top secret national security is done. And now this room is being used to fire TV villain Amarosa Manikov Newman, right? And it's pretty wild, actually, because there's a sign outside the Situation Room that says you can't bring phones, you can't bring devices in here, and it's an honor system, but, you know, people do not do that. So with that, um, if you would stay here with these gentlemen, they'll lay this thing out. And we Can have I a, ask you a couple of questions? Does uh, the president, is the president aware of this? And Amarosa begins to question him and says... Does the president know about this? And essentially he says, no, the staff works for me. The staff doesn't work for the president. Can you delineate what these issues are, she asks. He says, no, uh, these are serious enough issues that there could be a court-martial if you were in the military. He obviously was a former general. And he says to her, we do not want this to be a big public thing. It's it's a semi-threat, he, he says. If we make this a friendly departure... Um, we can all be, you know, you can look at look at your time here in, in uh, the White House as a year of service to the nation, uh, and then you can go on without any type of uh, difficulty in the future relative to your reputation. But it's, it's clear if you don't leave quietly, <laughs> it may not end so well. That have, uh, so do we know how many recordings Amorosa has? 
We know that she has dozens and dozens of recordings. White House aides are quite fearful. Imagine if you uh, went to work with someone for a year and they were surreptitiously recording you and you did not know if you were on the tapes or not. And she's trickling these out. And the thing that has scared a lot of folks inside the White House is there are a number of specific vivid quotes and scenes in the book that you could not remember that strongly. So it's led a lot of people to believe that a number of scenes in the book are recorded. And so this surreptitious recording inside of the White House is particularly interesting because it seems like, to some degree at least, it's a reflection of a culture of infighting inside the White House that Trump himself set from the beginning, right? In the beginning of his presidency, Trump urged staffers to sign NDAs. What do we do know is in the early months of the White House, the president was obsessed with senior aides signing nondisclosure agreements. And, and Don McGahn, his chief White House lawyer, said to him, These are not enforceable. Previous administrations didn't do this. We can't basically give these out and have people sign them. And the president said, no, you will. People will sign NDAs. They've done it throughout my career, and they will do it here. So they were passed around the West Wing. A lot of folks were leery of signing them. You know, there are people who have worked on the Hill and in government for years and never signed an NDA, and all of a sudden, as a public servant, you're asked to sign an NDA. And Don McGahn, the chief lawyer that we referenced earlier, said to them, you know, you have to sign this. The president wants it. I actually don't think it's enforceable. And I drafted the document. But if you don't sign this, it's going to be a problem. Now, we know Trump uses NDAs repeatedly. He right. uses them in private business. Why is this something that Trump does? Well, two reasons, I think. One, in the business world, these are more prevalent than in government circles. Uh, a lot of businesses use NDAs because they deal with a litany of contractors and subcontractors and architects and executives who have access to the most secretive of their plans and proposals and prospects. And you don't want the public to know every bit of your private business interactions. So that's partially it. Two, uh, you know, the president He's obsessed with his media coverage, and he's obsessed with what's written about him and his family. And particularly before he became president, he lived a life that was pretty um, controversial at times. I mean, this was a president who had a pretty high-flying, high-profile life in New York. I mean, he was in page six almost every day of the New York Post gossip page and wanted to be in page six almost every day. So these NDAs were very important tools for him to control what was said about him while he tried to shape the narrative of, of what his life looked like. And people who got close to him for any extended period of time or even a short period of time were asked to sign NDAs. At this point, your reporting has determined that AIDS are no longer asked to sign NDAs when they join the administration. But we also know from your reporting that Amorosa was asked again to sign an NDA upon her departure from the White House last winter. What are the details of that NDA? Now, I've seen that NDA, Mm -hmm. and that NDA is real. The campaign offered her a $15,000 job essentially to do diversity outreach and some surrogate appearances. In exchange, she would never say a negative word about Trump, President Trump, Vice President Pence, any member of the family, any of his businesses, anything she learned in the White House for time immemorial, forever. And what was interesting about that agreement was even if they stopped paying her the $15,000 a month and the agreement was terminated, she still forever could not say anything about the White House. And she did not sign that. The problem that seems to arise for Trump here is a recurring one. 
What works in private business doesn't always work in the federal government. To be clear, there are circumstances when it's legal to restrict White House aides from revealing what goes on inside the White House. And that's when information is classified. But NDAs from the government that apply to unclassified information? We haven't quite seen that before. So there aren't NDAs for non-classified information. So that doesn't exist. And the sort of suggestions that we've been hearing from the White House that these are common is not true. That's Danielle Bryan, the executive director of the Project for Government Oversight, which is a nonpartisan government watchdog. She's explaining why the rules of restricting speech change when you move from a private business to the government. And what they just don't understand is when someone is appointed to work in government, they're now a public employee and they're a public servant. They're not a servant to that person. And he seems to think that he can demand a loyalty oath to him, the person, rather than to the public. And that's just not the way government works in the United States. Let's talk a little bit about how government does work, or at least how it's worked in the past. Have we seen an administration try to apply these kinds of restrictions on speech of government employees before? It was sometime in the 1980s that, in the Reagan administration, that there was a form that was created and asked every federal employee to sign that essentially had them agree that they would not release classifiable information. So it actually said classified or classifiable. And it was given to people who didn't have clearances as well as those who did. And there was a whistleblower at the time who was actually one of the founders of our organization, Ernie Fitzgerald from the Air Force, who said, what does that mean? And he, in fact, went to the Congress and then legislation passed that prohibited the federal government from enforcing what he called a gag order on federal employees. Now, there's another technicality here, which is that White House officials are not necessarily considered agency employees. So despite that history, those protections may not apply to White House employees. But the First Amendment does. And that's not something that can be taken away because of a an NDA. And for the sake of explanation, what might stop somebody from revealing unclassified information if there's no legal bounds if they haven't signed an NDA. What might stop somebody from just revealing everything that's going on inside of the government? And and is that a problem if they do so? Well, the primary reason is that whistleblowers don't exactly have an easy time. So if you're revealing wrongdoing, you're really putting yourself in tremendous jeopardy. And so there is every incentive not to reveal wrongdoing if you want to keep your job. Right. So the government can enforce against staff leaks or whistleblowing by potentially terminating uh, an employee? Well, there are laws that prevent that kind of retaliation. And happily, we have every few years been able to sort of strengthen those protections. Mm -hmm. But there's only certain types of disclosures that are considered protected speech. So anything that a government employee can talk about that is not, uh, there's sort of a very specific term of art, which is the bottom line is it's, you know, revealing misconduct that is illegal or against rules or is of immediate danger to health and safety. There's so many other things that could be said. Those are not protected speech. So there's a whole world of things that federal employees can dispute in dissenting about policy, for example. But for the most part, you are at your own peril if you're a federal employee and you are making a disclosure that might annoy your bosses that isn't really protected speech. So you could then potentially be fired if it's not protected speech. Yeah. And, you know, the question is, yes, you could be fired, but do you have any recourse? And I think the problem in many cases is no. So then in this case where Trump is asking government employees not to reveal things or talk about things, 
things that are unclassified? Is he asking to infringe upon people's First Amendment rights? I would believe that that would be a very strong case for someone to make if they have been asked to sign this or, you know, if he tries to go after her on those grounds. I see so far, I'm guessing they're not going to go there. I mean, what we're seeing is that it's just the campaign, right, that has filed this mandatory arbitration. I think it's because the lawyers in the White House actually realize that they can't get away with this. But they can under the campaign umbrella? Yes. My understanding is that a campaign really is a completely different animal and and doesn't have the same kinds of rules that apply to government employees. So if Trump does bring this to court, it's right now an arbitration, does he risk potentially making all of his other NDAs invalid if, for example, they settled in the favor of Omarosa? Well, I think that's why we're going to see, we're not going to see a case brought on any NDA she might have signed once they came to the White House, because that would jeopardize the purpose of why I believe they're having them in the first place, which is just to, to chill uh, free speech. What do you think the end game is here of Trump's arbitration? What is he trying to accomplish if you say it might kind of work against him? I think what's going to happen is my understanding is in this case, they're demanding you know, all her proceeds from her book. Mm-hmm. But I think what they'll have to do is parse, well, how much of the book is about what was in the campaign, mm-hmm. which might be fair game, but not what happened once she came to government. And I don't think they want to go there. There's certainly parts of the book that are about the campaign. That's Post reporter Josh Dossie again. That are described details on the campaign in pretty vivid scenes. And you can imagine that could be in violation of the NDA. Here's the thing, though, really, right? Like, so this NDA is there from the campaign. What good is it doing anyone now? The book's out. She's done dozens of media appearances. She's made all sorts of explosive claims about the president. Even if they won the arbitration and it was in violation of a campaign, what good does it do? Winning that arbitration can't do much to clear people's memories of Omarosa's claims over the past few weeks. But this entire saga offers a moment to consider how a president's leadership style can contribute to a staffer's willingness to divulge information to the public. You know, the best NDA is running your organization in a professional way where people feel respected and they respect each other and you foster a healthy climate and workplace and they have loyalty to you and you have loyalty to them. And they don't want to talk because they see themselves as a team player and they don't want the internal fratricide hurting the mission, right? On the note of team players then, Trump campaigned on this idea of draining the swamp. This was a phrase that at different times has meant different things. But one way for sure that he's used it is to indicate that he would rid Washington of longtime public servants. Trump instead hired people from the business and entertainment industry Is that what we're seeing play out now with NDAs and leaks, a side effect of the choice to hire non-public servants? That's a good question. (laughs) Well, particularly early on, there was kind of a triumvirate of government. It was, you know, Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, all angling for the president, all pushing different ideas, all quietly fighting it out in the media to get what they wanted done. And I think the difference is that In most White Houses, you have like 10 aides and they may disagree on X, Y, and Z, but they're all free trade and they're all essentially anti-abortion or they're all in a Republican White House. You know, there's a certain kind of orthodoxy that most mainstream Republicans pull for. What President Trump did was he brought in, 
you know, a whole range of opinions from Steve Bannon, who was running Breitbart, to Wilbur Ross as his Commerce Secretary, to to Gary Cohn, who hated tariffs, to Lighthizer's Trade Aid, who loves tariffs. And he brought in these whole diverging set of opinions and gave them all senior positions in the government and basically said, duke it out. And it's an interesting way to run a railroad. After all of this, here is what we know. NDAs issued by the president to his government employees are highly unconventional and very likely unenforceable. When Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders tells reporters that... I'm not going to get into uh, the back and forth on who has signed an NDA here at the White House. I can tell you that it's common in a lot of places for employees to sign NDAs, including in government, particularly anyone with a security clearance. She's using the term NDA. But that's not exactly what government employees with access to classified information would sign. Government employees with security clearances do sign documents agreeing not to reveal classified information. But unclassified information is a different matter. So this leaves me with one more question. Is the mere introduction of an NDA in the White House, one designed to apply to unclassified information, setting a new standard for the kinds of transparency that we as Americans should have into our government? If the NDAs were actually enforceable, which I'm not sure the ones in the White House are, it would be incredibly damaging to transparency. If no one in the White House can say anything publicly or privately about anything they've seen or heard, you would still have folks who would leak things out and you would still get some semblance of it. But it would certainly take away the understanding of what was happening day to day in the building. Even if it's not enforceable, it's clear that they are demanding of their appointees a personal loyalty rather than a loyalty to the people that they are representing. What do you think we can expect next from Amorosa? What's coming? <laughs> Quiet and solitude. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I think Amorosa will continue to make news, to make headlines. I think she's got a book to sell. She's got a tour to go on. She knows that fresh and new revelations keep people interested. And I think in the classic Trumpian fashion, uh, she knows how to do publicity. And I don't think we will see her vanish from the spotlight anytime soon, though some may wish that she would. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. This episode was produced by Ted Muldoon and Carol Alderman. We have design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. Our theme music was composed by Ted Muldoon. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please share it. You can also follow me, Allison Michaels, on Twitter at Allison Mikes. <laughs>